I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there, everybody in podcast land. Benny coming to you live with another episode of Juanced, uh, episode number 66 uh, with uh, Dan, and I'll let Dan introduce our special guest today. Uh, Dan, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. We're here on day uh, 28 of this war. Um, I'm speaking, of course, from uh, Rehoboth. You are, where are you traveling these days? I'm coming to you from Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the moment. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay. Uh, and we have here with us a special guest, as we've been doing uh, weekly uh, episodes now uh, relating to the war in Gaza. We have uh, a colonel uh, in the reserves, uh, Dr. Iran Lerman, one of my favorite analysts of uh, uh, international and regional affairs. Uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, uh, listening to and, and working with uh, Dr. Lerman uh, many times. Uh, spent over 20 years in uh, Israeli intelligence, rising to the uh, to the uh, position and the rank of basically the top analyst in uh, military intelligence. Uh, he headed, uh, represented the AJC in Israel for uh, quite a number of years, uh, teaches at a number of universities, including uh, Shalem College here in Israel, and is currently the vice president uh, at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Um, and he always explains things in English with a wonderful kind of Oxfordian uh, uh, tint to his uh, which is required, frankly, because I'm a Sabra, third generation, born and bred. Uh, very, very nice to have you with us, Iran. Very nice to have you. You're welcome. So, before um, also, also, by the way, I edit a magazine, which uh, actually my pub of, of which the publisher of which is a Moroccan Muslim, uh, Ahmed Shari, and uh, a staunch friend of uh, of uh, the Abraham Accords and uh, and, and Israel, and. Uh, I'd recommend your uh, listeners to to peek in to uh, jstribune.com. I will second that recommendation. Uh, I've had the uh, pleasure of publishing in that a couple of times, hopefully again very soon. Uh, And it is really a wonderful, uh, very very balanced, very uh, professional uh, publication that deep dives into different issues relating to foreign affairs and and the Middle East. Iran, uh, aside from this conflict that's really got us all... uh, um, you know, uh, upset and, and bothered, of course, uh, by this national tragedy. How have you been uh, recently? Well, uh, as they say nowadays, personally, I'm, I'm holding up. Um, the mood of the country is uh, very sober and somber. Um, I have family uh, in the south. Uh, uh, my daughter's in-laws, uh, some of them live uh, in the, or lived in the Otef, uh, uh, in the area adjacent to the Gaza Strip. Um, none of them uh, directly affected, but all of them badly shaken and uh, forced to leave their homes. Uh, uh, and uh, and the, the war is still uh, on and may expand, so we are uh, going through a very... Uh, difficult period in, in, in some ways, I think, uh, even more radically upsetting and, and uh, uh, let's say, questioning, raising questions about of, uh, uh, the country's future um, to a larger degree than anything since 73 and maybe even that. Are you, are you of the mindset that this is an existential war, that this is a second war of independence, or do you think that's kind of a speech to to get people's uh, spirits up in, in such a difficult time? Uh, I know Netanyahu's uh, speech was criticized by uh, Yossi Cohen, the former head of the Mossad recently. Where, where do you kind of fall on that? Now, also, the, the DMI, although discredited for his failure and by his own admission, but uh, still he also said, this war as we fight it, namely the war to defeat Hamas and destroy it, 
is not existential in the sense that the disproportional forces enables us to do it. Uh, the, the, uh, we have been badly, badly uh, uh, beaten, but we are not broken. However, um, if this becomes a, an all-out regional war with Iran, Hezbollah, and others drawn in, then we may uh, actually redefine it as having an existential nature. And therefore, um, what we um, end up doing in the Gaza war uh, and the deterrent uh, posture that this uh, fight right now would leave behind is vital to our ability to survive in a very uh, difficult environment right now. So we're on day 28 now. Um, we've been, you know, kind of, uh, we brought back uh, the podcast ever since uh, these unfortunate circumstances. Um, we're now at uh, uh, around around uh, 1,500 uh, Israelis who have, who have been killed, uh, the vast majority murdered on the first day. We're still, we're still discovering uh, bodies, still trying to identify people. Uh, around 240 um, are presumed to be held uh, hostage uh, by Hamas. Um, the numbers of, of uh, the death toll on the Palestinian side is, is uh, now supposed to be at over 9,000. It's not exactly clear how many are militants and how many are uh, civilians. Uh, we've had over 12,000 attacks on Gaza. Uh, just to re recap kind of where we are for everyone, can we can we go back to the first day? And, you know, for someone uh, like yourself who served uh, in military <laughs> for such a long time, we've been talking here in Israel about the, the uh, misconception or how conceptia. Um, can you can you give us an understanding of of really such a colossal failure of intelligence um, that that led to this? Because you know militarily uh, Hamas is much weaker than Israel. Um, so so the you know basically to to make it accessible for for our listeners here, um, th that means the defenses on the border had to be um, had to be in such low state of preparedness to allow to allow such a thing to happen. Can you give us kind of an insider insight into how such a thing can take place? Well, the four conclusions as to uh, what should have been done and was not done, we'll have to await the post-war uh, commission of inquiry, which is bound to be put together and is, I, I believe is bound to be what we call a, a national rather than a governmental Commission of Inquiry headed by a Supreme Court uh, judge and, and uh, a, an, an independent uh, panel, uh, such as the Aganat Commission after 73. But uh, bef well, well before that, I think we can speak of three and uh, your, uh, and, and, and many in Israel would say four uh, basic uh, failures. Perhaps uh, let me say something about the fourth, which is the very idea that uh, a two-state solution, a sovereign Palestinian presence in, uh, in Gaza are tolerable propositions. For many in Israel now, this is a questionable uh, issue. Did we, uh, were, was it a, a mistake to even go into the Oslo process? Was it a mistake to allow uh, uh, Gaza to be to become a, a Palestinian uh, control enclave? Was it a mistake to clear out our, uh, the, the Jewish presence in, uh, in uh, 2005? These are fundamental questions, deeply deep political questions that have yet to be uh, debated again. Uh, revisited. But that's not the reason for what happened. The reason, the direct reasons for what happened are a combination of a, um, a basic strategic misconception about Hamas and its intentions, or its priorities, to be precise. We all knew that it is committed to the destruction of Israel, but as we say, we assumed we, we, we created a situational deterrence. Let's say the Jews should die, but not this week. Well, turned out that this was not the case. Um, this was fed by uh, Hamas, aspects of Hamas behavior. They negotiated the uh, arrangements with Israel. 
they uh, tried uh, to uh, basically uh, enhance their income via Qatari suitcases of, uh, of cash, because uh, Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority, would not allow any, uh, any um, uh, supply of money via the bank, so it had to be done in this bizarre manner. They reinforced uh, this impression by, uh, say, um, staying out of the, of the um, uh, rounds we had this week, uh, this year and the year before with uh, uh, um, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, uh, two, two violent, short violent rounds, and the result was a uh, Hamas stayed out. So we, we thought, we collectively, many Israelis thought that um, this confirms their, uh, um, their, their, the problem, we, uh, that, that they are aware of their inferiority, military inferiority, and they are deterred. All of this turns out to have been uh, a misconception. If I could state, state the obvious from where I am over here in the States, uh, you know, Israel's often considered the gold standard when it comes to intelligence, oper- you know, intelligence capabilities or, you know, uh, uh, apparatus and protocols. And to, to witness, I think for not just me, but for the entire world, to witness Hamas be able to essentially pull off what accounts to a really good long con uh, of, of the highest order um, is is shocking and stunning. And, and, and again, I'm stating the obvious, but it's it's mm-hmm. truly remarkable. You have to almost, you know, while detesting them, you have to respect what they what they were able to achieve in in, in certain ways. Very very impressive uh, in this respect. Uh, it 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 true like even what you just mentioned that there were previous rounds and that Islamic. Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas sat out. It's not like they were sitting out. It's it, it was part of a plan. Well, that's what it turns out. I mean, I was yeah. one of people uh, also, Iran, uh, Katonti, as we say in Hebrew, but I was also one of these people who, who took all of these things as a sign. I even went so far to say that Hamas might be moderating and, and kind of becoming more and more of a, of a de facto responsible ruler. Um, and boy, how wrong uh, we were. Uh, in in this regard, you know, watching them sit out, as you said, the rounds uh, versus Islamic Jihad, and saying uh, uh, th- this shows that they are in fact becoming a responsible actor and uh, and maybe turning towards governance. Um, and I think we're very wrong. What what would you say to a lot of the discourse and accusations and kind of what aboutism that is being thrown around um, that? You know, it goes from, from, well, Israel created Hamas in the 1980s to all the way to the conspiracy theories, even to the point of uh, Netanyahu allowed this to happen. Um, Maybe he didn't expect it to be so brutal, but he allowed this to happen uh, in order to kind of save his political career. How would you respond to some of these? Some of them sound more reasonable and and maybe give us a little bit of the historical context of uh, Israel and its role in, in kind of helping create Hamas as a counterweight to the to the PLO, um, but then all the way to these to these accusations that you see flying around on social media. Well, um, what I can say about this is that um, we people were not exactly uh, misled. Uh, but by the way, can I stop for three mi- a minute? I have a problem that I have to solve. Uh, can can you stop for a minute? So, yeah, okay. we'll just Dan and I, you, you and I can can sort of Sorry. go here because we're, we're we're live here. I I do want to sort of reiterate what I said. I mean, it's 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 the long con. It's yeah. it's it's amazing. It's it's this. It, it tr- truly very, truly. You're right, Benny. From a very detached, you know, military perspective, if I if I'm if I'm a, an alien or if I'm a historian, right, at, totally um, no emotion whatsoever. And I, just, I don't care which side wins or loses, and I'm just looking at it and I say kudos to them. They they were really uh, the underdog here, and they they pulled up a long con. They kept it completely secret, um, and, and they managed to pull off 
uh, uh, quite a feat. The cost to them, I don't think, is going to be worth anything uh, unless unless they really do. We'll get into it later in the episode with Iran, but um, it it sort of, in a way, harkens back. I don't want to sort of build an equivalence between them and us, but when you do live in such proximity, your entire we've and we've talked about this on the show before, where the Palestinian national movement almost echoes in many ways uh, the Zionists because they because they in proximity to one another, they they have us sort of as something to to emulate uh and not that hamas is is necessarily advocating for a palestinian state it's a, it's a death cult it's it's quite something else but uh it, it almost sort of reminds me in a way of things that you know we perhaps would have been capable of doing around the you know the pre-state period or or 1948 uh vis-a-vis the british well very different proposition, if I sure. um, sure. Marginally, you could say this about the Palestinian national movement. Hamas is something else. And it, the assumption of the people who worked with the Mujamma, the, the Islamic element in Gaza, in the, uh, and, you know, the Shin Bet people who were aware of their activity and did not stop them, was that uh, Islam uh, as a religion uh, may be an, an antidote to the fervent pro-Soviet uh, nationalism of the Palestinian national movement in the 70s and 80s. But by 1988, when Hamas was created out of this uh, say, uh, religious club in Gaza, uh, things have changed. Yes. And what changed was that the Soviet Union was collapsing. The um, and the hatred and, and and here was and the hatred towards the Soviets was fed by the war in Afghanistan. And what you had as a result was, and I am I'm quite uh, solid on this question, a return to Nazi ideas. You know, the Nazis fought both the West and the East. And if you read the Hamas Covenant of 1988, and by the way, the, the document that they later created, 2017, is one more part of this uh, charade that they have changed and moderated. What you need to read, uh, what I teach my, used to teach and still teach my students, is the Hamas Covenant of 1988. You go to chapter 22, and you read the Nazi verbatim, the Nazi interpretation of history. It's the Jews, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, capitalism, communism, uh, the whole lot of the world is traceable to the conspiracies of the enemies. But it's clearly the Jews, not just the Zionists, because Herzl would have been somewhat constrained to have planned the French Revolution since he was born in 1860. Right. So uh, um, it's the Jews. And it's not just the Jews, they are, they control through their money and their money and their money. You, you get the general idea. This is basically the Nazi interpretation of history. And this is Hamas. And once we, we understood that, that uh, here was a major shift in orientation, Hamas did become, an, did become an enemy to fight. And of course, by the 1990s, uh, we were at, uh, at war with it, uh, full tilt. But um, so, so the assumption that somehow Israel all along uh, played with Hamas as a tool is, uh, is overstated. What did happen was that um, uh, since the decision in 2009 not to go in all the way and destroy them, which maybe should have been the decision there and then, when uh, uh, when they exploited the disengagement, exploited their control of Gaza to 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 start what came to be the pattern of rocket attacks and threats to our civilian population. Since that decision was taken, um, and this is also part of the conception, the IDF uh, grew accustomed to the idea that containing and deterring Hamas is preferable to conquest. Why? Because we don't want to conquer the Gaza Strip. We don't want to rule it. It's not that if we cannot do it, we can do it. It's not about IDF casualties. It's about 
the idea that we would get stuck mired in this terrible place with our soldiers losing their life here and there, uh, Lebanon style. And, uh, and at the end of the day, um, we would again leave with no results. So um, that was, I think, I think, the underlying working assumption. Add so, to this two, two more factors that, that okay. contribute to what happened. One is that uh, there were a lot of tactical uh, failures in the deployment of intelligence assets. Um, the balloons were down, all sorts of strange coincidences that, that piled up together. And the fact that the IDF ground forces generally have been depleted. Uh, there was a philosophy behind it. You know, the Egyptians are peace partners. Jordan works with us. The Syrian military, who for many years was our nightmare, is essentially a shadow of its own self because of the civil war. Uh, and so we are facing uh, terror armies, uh, Hezbollah, uh, Hamas, uh, not this kind of formations that would require the, the large investment in maneuvering formations that Israel once was once the, the backbone of Israeli fighting uh, capabilities. Uh, I think the trend was beginning to change. I've, I've read some academic studies, some military studies, uh, pointing back to maneuver and, 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 and ground warfare, but did not, none of this matured in time uh, when we were caught, uh, caught out on October 7. And, uh, and so it came to be that uh, some elements were diverted elsewhere, uh, again, ideological questions or practical questions, and the Western Negev was left with no reserves. Yet ready. Do you believe that Israel will be able to? At the point of breakthrough. So the entire the entire complement of, of Israel's special forces had to be rushed in a haphazard way into battle with terrible losses. Uh, about three hundred of our best were killed in the first uh, first uh, day of of uh, disorganized fighting. Instead of any an orderly uh, campaign to to destroy the invaders, and uh, all of this, you pile the three or four uh, layers, uh, one on top of each other, and you have, uh, let's say, a situation which would require us to rethink everything that we've been assuming in the last thirty years. Before, before I know Dan wants to ask some things, but before he does, you know, you you you've painted what is absolutely a very grim picture of the realities of the morning of October 7th and the readiness and the assessment of the IDF leading up to that point. As we've now experienced this and, and sort of pivoted to the to the war footing afterwards, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric out there in terms of the popular discourse around Israel at this moment, that Israel's strong, Israel will overcome, Israel has the capabilities, and on and on and on. And, you know, there's a place for that, and that's a part of Obviously, politics as well, and 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 the way that we want to feel good about ourselves. But do and you think that public this, morale? Correct. Yeah. Do you, in terms of in assessing this moment, do you see that we're able to sort of rise out of the ashes, pivot, uh, and and quickly put ourselves yeah, on a different footing? Well, the IDF has shown uh, resilience more than once. People tend to forget we were caught uh, on a similar. Uh, situation on the 6th of October 73. On the 22nd of October, uh, we were 100 kilometers from Cairo and, and the, the gates of the Damascus conurbation. So um, the IDF can rally. Uh, the, in, in Gaza, it is acting more slowly, more methodically because of a very different nature of the enemy and the, and the battlefield. But it has rallied remarkably. I think the Perhaps the, the, the simplest uh, relevant number is uh, between 150 to 200%, which is the rate of reserve um, response to the reserve call-up. That's to say, um, sometimes two men showed up for everyone called up, uh, men and women showing up for reserve service. Uh, that tells you something about the spirit of the country. 
and, and the capacity of the IDF uh, to organize and rally. Uh, within two days, 360,000 uh, soldiers were called up, more than enough to handle both Gaza and a uh, and the most severe con- contingency uh, possible uh, in the north. So, so let's talk about the north Iran. Uh, we have, you know, since almost the first day uh, or the first weekend, Hezbollah. Uh, first, it was Palestinian factions kind of in Hezbollah-controlled territory. Now, it's it's fully clear that it's Hezbollah has been firing uh, mortars, has been firing a lot of anti-tank uh, uh, missiles at Israeli positions. Um, you know, all all of the uh, a few rockets. A few rockets, all of the villages and kibbutzim and, and uh, farming communities and even, you know, some of the small cities up on the northern border had to be evacuated. Um, and so far, it has not escalated um, into into a full-out war. Um, how do you see here, and of course, we've had fire from the Houthi uh, rebels in Yemen who have fired uh, cruise missiles and missiles. Some of them have been intercepted towards uh, southern Israel. Can you give us kind of a, a picture of the what we call usually the Iran-led radical access, um, what's it doing? What's it not doing? What does it want to achieve in this time? Well, um, first of all, as we speak, uh, the situation may change because uh, we are we're coming nearer to the speech by Hassan Nasrallah scheduled for three o'clock, which some people expect would be the announcement of an all-out war. I'll take the risk of, and, and it's a serious risk nowadays, of, uh, of saying it's probably going to be somewhat short of that. Uh, they will escalate. Uh, they feel obliged to escalate because the Houthis are firing and Gaza is under extreme duress. And uh, the Iranians uh, have invested all that uh, money and, and, and uh, material in them in order for them to to be the most salient uh, element in the alliance called uh, the camp of resistance or the front of resistance uh, but at the same time there are a number of factors that uh, Hassan Nasrallah must take into account one is that the IDF is in full readiness is not going to be able to to do anything launch anything in in surprise by surprise and um, and the maneuver capacities of the northern command are there to basically take the war to the enemy um, in, in much uh, more dramatic uh, fashion than uh, at any any time before. You remember we had 2006 when we fought Hezbollah's second Lebanon war. Uh, it took a full month for the for the IDF to actually make the decision to go on a ground campaign. Uh, this is not going to be the case now. Uh, and there's a full reserve call up. The maneuvering uh, forces are there. The Air Force, while uh, doing its duty in Gaza, is, uh, uh, will be unleashed. The consequences for Hassan Nasrallah and for Lebanon would be disastrous. And uh, by now, Hezbollah, Hezbollah has a lot of enemies in Lebanon. They are not the heroes of 2000. They are the butchers of the Syrian people. That's right. They are, they are the people who brought uh, uh, the catastrophe of uh, the air, uh, port explosion upon the people of Lebanon. The people hate them. And so if they are fatally weakened by a conflict with the IDF, uh, the Lebanese themselves may move into uh, against them. So they, he would be running uh, uh, what I would say fairly is an existential risk uh, to Hezbollah as an organization, to him as a person, and to the abilities of Iran to keep Hezbollah in reserve and a deterrent uh, against Israel. How, how much of that decision is in Tehran and how much of it is in the bunkers under South Lebanon, under South Beirut? It's a, it's a tough question because, of course, if he's given an order, an explicit uh, order by Iran, he would feel obliged to go. But then the Iranians are also uh, having to think twice before they waste their most precious asset. Uh, certainly when uh, the United States has also positioned itself, and that's another consideration. And, uh, and, and, and in, in the region uh, with uh, uh, President Biden's message, don't. And uh, well, I'm, we know in this region, maybe even very close to home, all kinds of people who say things but don't intend to carry them out, 
I have this um, view of an American warning of this kind that it is substantive. So, and then probably so does do Khamenei and Hassan Nasrallah and, and Kaini. So, uh, there are serious considerations against an all out assault, but the likelihood of uh, uh, going a notch up, uh, escalating further while trying to maintain control of what is sometimes referred to as the escalation ladder. Um, this is a very real possibility uh, so, in the next so, few hours. So a quick question, and, and before we get into sort of Western powers in this, you know, how, assuming that happens, how does this then end? How do you, how does it get de-escalated after well, it escalates? Um, I think the mood in Israel has shifted dramatically. If we are, uh, what we've learned on the 7th of October is that uh, we need to exact the full price mm -hmm. of those who go after our, our population, our people, and our, threaten our survival. So if Hezbollah goes in, it will, to some extent, uh, costly as this may be, it will be a war to the finish. And in that in that case, would Iran feel the need if it sees its its most valuable asset being destroyed in in South Lebanon or in Lebanon? Would they feel the need to directly involve themselves at if that they stage? Do. Well, their capacity to do so is not unlimited. Of course, uh, they don't have the bomb yet. Mm -hmm. Even if they did, by the way, um, turns out that um, uh, missiles uh, work. And, uh, and can actually intercept uh, an incoming ballistic missile. So the Iranians uh, are now looking at a, at a different equation, but uh, so certainly under the present situation where they not are not yet a, a military nuclear power, their capacity to do something conventionally against Israel um, is seriously constrained. Of course, uh, we, we may find ourselves facing salvos of missiles from all directions, uh, but that's already, uh, let's say, this is the assumption that we need to live with if Hezbollah goes in. Uh, they on their own have uh, 150,000 uh, 150, rockets, that, and their arsenal would simply have to be eliminated by, by, by destruction and conquest. If and, these, and these arsenals are held under civilian houses uh, throughout, uh, throughout South Lebanon. Uh, so, something that that has come up, you know, in a conversation with uh, colleagues, friends, fellow analysts in uh, in the Gulf uh, that I'm talking to, part, part of the same forum that uh, that we're a part of, um, they seem to see Iran in a lot more of a potential pragmatic and de-escalation role than than we can even imagine here in Israel. Is there any kind of constellation in which Iran? could be convinced maybe by the the broader arab world to to play a, a pragmatic oh sorry <laughs> to play a pragmatic role in uh in this region yeah. <laughs> i uh, forgive me if i uh, first of all we are getting increasingly wary of all kinds of protestations of uh, of moderation after what uh, we discussed earlier about hmm. hamas Moreover, um, the, uh, the Iranian regime is essentially a failure. It has not delivered for its people. Most, uh, most Iranians live a miserable life, um, not to mention that uh, a, a creative and, and gregarious people have been forced to live uh, under this repressive uh, strangulation. But the, being in the business of destroying Israel, being in the business of bringing about a Shia redemption in the region is the one um, fantasy that keeps the regime legitimate uh, to some extent. Legitimate for who? Legitimate for um, their base, the, the, the impoverished Iranians who are still being told that all their suffering is for a purpose. I think that uh, among the Iranian uh, middle class uh, and intellectual elites, there's been a disillusionment long ago. 
Sure. Uh, but they don't. They are simply not strong enough or effective enough to to uh, bring this regime down. As long as it caters to the fantasy of the uh, of Islam Shah of the the, the, sh the poor of southern neighborhoods of of uh, Tehran, that all of this suffering and deprivation is for a grander purpose. And this grander purpose involves un the undoing of the existing order regionally, globally. And the destruction of Israel is part, is part of, of, of that pandemic. It, it's really unbelievable. I was listening to uh, an interview with the Iranian foreign minister on uh, CNN. Uh, I think the interview was from a few days ago, but I heard it today. And, um, you know, he kept saying, oh, we need to get the, uh, the Americans out of the region. They keep meddling. This is our region. This is not theirs. And, uh, and this is all in the defense of Iranian national security. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, just a, just a complete refusal to come to, to uh, building really a, an, an alternative reality um, that we talked about last week also when we did kind of a PR focus of of, uh, of what's going on here in that a, a big chunk of this region lives in a completely alternate reality that, that might not exist on the ground, but clearly very much exists in their heads. I've always been curious, Iran, I don't know if you have any insights. When Iranian leaders or Hezbollah or Hamas, when they talk in the way they do, do they really believe what they're saying? Yes, I think they basically, uh, they are steeped in an interpretation of history, uh, which is, um, in the case of the Islamist uh, Sunnis, I think is colored by uh, a notion of uh, um, victorious Islam that sooner or later will return to itself. And in the for the Shia, there's this additional element that history went wrong in the seventh century or in the first century of Islam, and would, and now we are here to put it right, and uh, and that is um, that enables you to look at uh, things from a very different perspective than say you and I. I remember Ahmadinejad going to Berlin uh, and thinking that he is going to delight the Germans by telling them that he thinks the wrong side won in World War II. Well, um, <laughs> that's a, a slight misreading of the current German mood, but but this is how what they look at that they believe that they can overturn the entire global dispensation, and the undoing of Israel is uh, uh, the key. To, to all of this. It seems... And, and, and this is, as you say, entirely ideological. Uh, the, the lie that this is about Iranian national security is, is absurd because Israel is not an enemy of Iran as such. We have no quarrel with them, not, you know, not a donkey or a, nor a sheep. Uh, you know, we, we took nothing from them. They took nothing from us. We used to be good friends there's a monument in israel to iranian israeli friendship it's 200 kilometers long and it leaks from time to time it's called <laughs> the elat ashkelon pipeline um and it was built as to to carry iranian crew to the mediterranean um we there is no geopolitical or economic or even historical beef between us if you don't count the book of esther but that was 2500 years ago <laughs> They still um, remember that. <laughs> some Iranians uh, resent the fact that we get drunk to celebrate the slaughter of our uh, Persian enemies back then. But that's, it's, we did, all did know, you, this, did you this, is not, this is not what this is about. Yeah. Iran, did it's you ever see that? turning Israel into an enemy for a purpose, a larger purpose. Did you ever see the absolutely genius Eretz Nederet skit many years ago? Eretz Nederet, for those who don't know, is an Israeli political satire show. And they they um, basically it, they showed uh, the scientists in the Iranian nuclear plant doing very much in the same way that we here in Israel have Holocaust Remembrance Day or or, or just a you know Memorial Day for our fallen soldiers. They were doing the same for those who fell in the massacre in Purim. of Purim uh, <laughs> years ago, and it was, it was it was really one of the most spot on. Uh, and that's not what this countries. is all about. No. <laughs> uh, Israel is just an instrument here in a larger scheme of proving that the Shia revolution will achieve what all the Sunni traitors have failed to achieve and therefore will legitimize the Shia takeover of the world of Islam after 1300 to 1400 years of deprivation. So I was listening to a podcast the other day with um, 
it was Barry Weiss and Walter Russell Mead. Ah. And, and yes, and, and he was talking about, um, well, he was talking about everything in a very macro sense, as he often does. But he was talking about uh, the role of the United States or the actions of the United States in the past decade vis-a-vis JCPOA and, and sort of assessments. And, and essentially it boiled down to you know, there's a balance of you know, how long can you kick the can down the road before you have to confront Iran head on? And can you trade sort of dealing with them in money to buy time before you have to actually confront the beast? And it just feels the mood in the world is the, it, it, it feels like we're getting to the end of the line. In, in, it could be. It could yeah. be. Israel finds itself, and and I think I've just tried to write recently uh, something to that effect. Israel finds itself obliged to take American concerns into consideration as it fights this war. How to handle the humanitarian issue? How to do this? How to do that? Timing and 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 methods. Uh, because the Americans are there with us. But the mirror image of this uh, need to consider our perspective is for the Americans to increasingly take into account where we are coming from uh, in this war and looking at Iran as the root cause. I think this is already um, ingrained in the perspectives of the American military establishment. And yet, against and yet, that, it has that, to cross the political threshold. Right, and and yet against that backdrop, you know, I'm reading right now in Ynet that it's believed that the Americans will only give Israel several weeks more time before they ask for some sort of a ceasefire on the ground. That it doesn't seem like, given everything we've just discussed, that all of that would be achievable in a couple of weeks' time. That seems to be detached from yeah. reality. Well, let, let me put it uh, carefully. Um, there are, uh, th- this is not about the Gaza Strip anymore. Right. It's about two different segments. Uh, the fight in the north, which is very intense, and I don't believe this is going to go on for months. And the uh, question of how to handle the situation that now pertains south of the Gaza Creek, with, with all these, uh, this mass of people who escaped and continue to escape uh, the, the, the battle zone. And the, uh, let's assume that Hamas as an organization is largely decapitated in the north. And then uh, what uh, emerges in the south is a semi-chaotic situation into which uh, we may have to walk in, the, the Egyptians may have to walk in simply to prevent the spillover into their territory. And perhaps already at an earlier stage than expected, the international community will also have to start uh, thinking about how to come in and pitch in. The one thing that cannot happen, I believe, is for the Palestinian Authority to effectively take over for the simple reason that they are barely capable of running Ramallah, let alone managing the immense challenges of a post-war Gaza. And we've uh, we've just published, uh, Bob Silverman and I just published a piece about this in, uh, in the National Interest. Um, we'll be glad to share that that link with you. And that kind of leads us to, to the maybe the last part of the discussion we wanted to get into, and maybe kind of the the meat and potatoes uh, of of, um, of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, there has been an immense amount of criticism um, from from the world, and I'm talking about the part of the world that is generally with us. I'm not talking about the anti-Israel. I'm not talking about uh, the the pro-Hamas camp. Um, and I heard I heard it kind of summed up in a very interesting uh, talk show today with an American, a former American uh, counterinsurgency expert who spent a lot of time in uh, Iraq. Um, and we can maybe bring in the the lessons and successes and failures of the American experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and maybe we can bring in the the lessons of uh, uh, the war against ISIS or even uh, Putin's experience in taking on the Chechens. Um, do you think? militarily and then we'll zoom out from from kind of the operational level to the more strategic or the 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 grand strategy level is the way israel is approaching this the right way it seems to me i'll give you my my initial thoughts on this that i've been wrestling with um that the most of the aerial bombardments um are not going to achieve the goal of decapitating hamas yeah. And, and and any gains that we make are lost 
in the the this you know we used to call it in the in the army maybe uh, when you were in the army as well the kind of uh, the sand you know the hourglasses and and, and mm. we're talking about the international legitimacy hourglasses and and the uh, the military hourglasses and the, and the the domestic hourglass um and Benny talked about Americans you know giving us a few weeks um should we be focusing on a much different strategy that that is much more targeted uh much more sustainable uh, much more from a visual perspective um, in how you're able to explain to the world. And I'll add, are we are we doing enough and should we be doing more to to kind of isolate uh, uh, um, harm to to civilians in Gaza um, and, and kind of look at the next day when, when we need to be talking about hearts and minds and what will the future of Gaza look like? Well, um, basically, there is no surgical manner in which we can take Hamas out while uh, leaving the uh, uninvolved unharmed. Uh, sim- it simply doesn't work. And the aerial uh, bombardment, if you start looking at the pattern, uh, was in the nature of what uh, professionals call preparing the battlefield for a ground incursion that was from day one inevitable. There is no way of destroying Hamas as a government and as a fighting, uh, organized fighting force. And it's, by the way, it's not an insurgency. We're not talking insurgency here. Insurgents don't have brigades and a missile arsenal and, and, and the entire, and basically the trappings of a military. This is a, a hybrid state or a, somewhere between a guerrilla and the military organization. It's not an insurgency in the traditional sense. And in order to destroy it as a governing force in Gaza, without which uh, no sane Israeli, I think, would go back to live in in this area, um, the uh, ground incursion was preordained. And we should look at the uh, aerial and artillery work that was done. It was all the pain that it inflicted, and I'm not ignoring it, as, as part of, of the combat operations, much more so, by the way, than the leveling of Dresden or Hamburg in, in, uh, in, in World War II. This is actually part of the battlefield scheme, unfortunately. And uh, Israel, from basically day one, or I would say day two, was telling the people of northern Gaza, of the Gaza City area, to relocate to move south and, and kept the uh, channels open uh, the humanitarian effort which angers a lot of israelis uh, no question about it a lot of israelis are seething with the idea that the international community is coercing us into bringing humanitarian supplies where well, we don't know the fate of, of three-year-olds or, or nine-month-old hostages held in in hamas tunnels so this is really driving a lot of Israelis to the point of, of, of uh, white anger. But the IDF actually thinks that uh, supplies, maybe even fuel to hospitals, etc. In the southern, uh, obviously no fuel would go now to Ashifa when we are about to basically ask them to clear it when we go in and destroy what's under it. But in the southern uh, uh, part of Gaza, which is actually the larger part, of the strip, uh, the situation is, uh, is different uh, altogether. And uh, the, the interesting question will be a month from now, is Hamas decap- destroyed in the north, what kind of a situation will pertain in the south? Right. And who will manage it and how will it be managed on the assumption that with Hamas uh, disintegrating, there will be a, a chaotic uh, situation. Uh, there, unless uh, unless others move in and and, and uh, create some semblance of order. So, um, so I think what, that's what does that mean? Who 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 is the others? Uh, and we have even a question from one of our listeners who's in Bahrain, um, and and uh, you know I, I'm, I, I'm, I, I have I have an answer of sorts. Sure. Um, that well, what does yeah? What does the day after? What does the day after the Israeli? The main military offensive, um, you know, the the the, uh, the neutralizing or decapitation, as you as uh, some have said, of, of Hamas and its leadership, and it's certainly its military capability. What does the next day look like? 
Is there some kind of international force? Is there a pan-Arab regional force that comes in? Um, ah. What kind of solutions should we be looking at here? Okay, um, none is, nothing is easy and nothing is, can, can be you know, stated in simple terms. Um, two things are ruled out right from the beginning. Um, the UN as an institution is as much in the grasp of China and Russia as in the, that of the West. And we and see so how effective we, they are in UNIFIL in Lebanon, of course. We've seen its uselessness. I used to say that Undoff in, in the Golan Heights uh, proved to be the, the interesting kind of umbrella that falls when it rains. Um, so uh, the basically, the and, and add to this the, the feckless uh, position uh, taken by Antonio Guterres, and you get the idea of why Israelis would not uh, give the UN authority on the next stages. The Palestinian Authority, um, leaving aside the ideological dimension of whether Israelis uh, want or do not want a two-state solution to be implemented, uh, but basically uh, the current government in Ramallah is incapable of, of, uh, of doing what is, it is supposed to do by all kinds of well-meaning individuals. And Salam Fayyad, an honest man, goes around saying, well, uh, we should build a new uh, uh, PA with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad represented. So with all due respect, this is not what we're shedding our blood for. So all this is out. An Arab uh, mission is a, another doubtful proposition. Um, I don't think that the, uh, they, vol they would volunteer for, for this duty. And, um, and the American military is also, I think, quite wary. So what are we? What are we left with? Well, well, exactly. What are the options? And and, and um, I would, uh, we didn't one, even touch Iran. We didn't even touch on Russia's role and how now uh, well, uh, the group is supposed to be negative and disruptive, yeah. essentially, but not much more than that. Constructively, we can expect nothing. Uh, but there is a model. By the way, talking about Russia, back in in seventy nine when we signed the peace treaty with Egypt. Uh, the Soviets refused to allow any United Nations sanction uh, being given to this peace treaty between two American allies. Uh, and therefore, the UN is not there in Sinai. What uh, was established after we left Sinai in 82 was a, um, a framework of authority and a presence on the ground called the MFO, Multiple Force and Observers, multinational. Yeah. Sorry, multinational force and observers. Now, um, the actual force is not relevant. It's basically a tank counting operation, not a, a, not a gendarmerie and not a reconstruction agency. We would need both a gendarmerie and a reconstruction agency. In Gaza, agency. you would need tens of thousands of gendarmerie. Uh, Probably, yes. We have, we'll, need to, we'll need to have a substantial capacity, but the source of authority is relevant here. It needs to flow from the interested regional parties, that is to say, Egypt, Israel, uh, the United States as the, the uh, overall supervisor. would be instrumental here. And uh, finance could come from our regional uh, um, like-minded, from regional like-minded nations that could actually, down the road, uh, if we are firm enough with the Iranians and push their impact uh, aside, we, we may see a revival of the Saudi project. Um, but uh, we're talking about Saudi money, not Saudi. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Money. I mean, you know, one of the things that has come up in the discussions with our friends from the UAE is that the Saudis and the Emiratis, they have experience in de-radicalization and in, in taking out the, the you know, the, the fundamentalist Salafist influences. In, in their own countries. In their own countries. They, when they, where they know uh, who they are dealing with and have done, have, have been doing it for years. Um, I doubt if they are the right kind of externals to be drawn into uh, the Gaza situation. But uh, with the right um, inducements, I think we can find international forces uh, uh, as long as they do not draw their authority from the UN, but rather from a different source of authority and and this the planning for the day after needs to begin 
right now in the, the whole lists of uh, oh, it should have been done uh, many years ago when with every round of fighting i think we just kind of kicked the can down the road due to international pressure and civilian casualties etc and and again that and combined we, with the we, we grew accustomed to yeah. uh, to a reality that pertained in the gaza strip for 16 years but we can no longer do so i have to say something that's it's 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 on the page but it's not necessarily in the in the, in the paragraph that we're writing at the moment we're talking about long-term sort of things that need to happen for the day after. We're talking about a very long road towards getting to where we need to go and, and massive changes in the region in terms of the power structure and, and whatnot. And it seems that in Fair this enough. moment, and, and, and again, we, we talked earlier about how current political pressures are causing our allies, such as the Americans, while giving us a green light to do what we need to do, they're also talking politically to certain aspects of the electorate that don't want to see this go on for a long time. They're talking about maybe a couple more weeks before they have to start talking about ceasefire. And again, that seems detached from this reality. And it sort of dawns on you in this moment that there doesn't seem to be, and I don't want our listeners to take this as sort of an anti or pro message towards one candidate or another in an election cycle. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about in a big picture sense. It doesn't seem that the current leadership in the West or even in Israel or, or anywhere, is sitting down and having real conversations with the population to prime them or bring them to a place of understanding of what is going to and what needs to happen in this moment for us as a free world to get past this and move on. It, it seems like there's... There's no church you, you're if, saying. Right. If I walk out here in Florida and talk to people... Most of them would have no idea what we're talking about, and a lot of them wouldn't care. But but those that do would just you know be impacted by the images of destruction on TV. No one's having a Roosevelt-style fireside chat with the population and saying, "Listen, everybody, this is the situation." And instead, you know, we're having that conversation and other you know podcasts. Are you, are you calling people. yourself Roosevelt? No, absolutely not. But 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 you you hear my point is that this conversation <laughs> needs to be happening by our leaders because it's real. Well. Um... I think this is more a speaking to the malaise uh, of uh, relations between the political level and the people in the West and in America in particular, in a very uh, polarized and, and, and uh, cynical society. Because if you actually go to Washington and you see President Biden, you hear the Secretary of State of the United States giving graphic descriptions of what happened. When you hear uh, Secretary Austin speaking to the horrors, when you see uh, Kirby uh, breaking uh, breaking up in, in on, on television, um, the uh, administration is where it where we it's... need it to be and has been from day one. They internalized the evocation of the Holocaust. We are making a mistake, I think, by painting ourselves as the Jews here. The Hamas are the Nazis. But we are the British, not the powerless Jews of 39 or 43. Mm -hmm. But the evocation of the Nazi imagery by the, um, the entire leadership of, of, the, of the administration from Biden on down was a very powerful message to those willing to listen. Then you go to Congress. And yes, there are noises on campus, and yes, there are very nasty voices from the progressive camp. But let us bear in mind that uh, um, Rashid Atlaib just barely survived censor, or even uh, potentially, well, Santos was not expelled and she was not censored, but, but uh, um, this was because the Republicans tripped this up. Uh, they, uh, on the, the vote, uh, organized by Mike uh, Johnson as I think his first act as Speaker of the House, yes. went 412 to 10 with yeah. six substantial. When I look at Congress, I'm, I'm not concerned. I, I think... So I think... the leadership is there saying Israel has a right to defend itself, etc. Um, it is up to us to make good use of the leeway we've been given. And so that kind of brings us maybe to a last point, and maybe we can try to wrap up with this. Is there something that Israel is not doing that it should be? Is there something that Israel shouldn't be doing that it currently is, in your view? Uh, and and 
what you know if if counterinsurgency is not the right lesson here what is the right lesson uh, from historical uh, precedents that we can look at no i i think that the uh, imagery of uh, destroying the nazi project and then re-educating the germans uh, to the simple fact that this catastrophe was the, is what they brought upon themselves this is our duty and this is going to be our mission uh, we're going to have to start talking to to intelligent uh, Gazans um, and saying, "Look what happened to you, and why." And I have to say, and this is perhaps something we are not doing enough. If you ask me, what are we not doing enough? We are not pointing out to those who um, who uh, argue for the Palestinians that their position is actually reflective of what I would call reverse racism, mm. the racism of reduced expectations. That's yes. language you don't hear enough, that to tolerate and excuse and, uh, and allow for the uh, horrific actions that uh, are taken in the name of, of the Palestinian struggle is to dehumanize not only us as targets, but the Palestinians as perpetrators. But infantilizing them, which, which is infantilizing something... Infantilizing them, uh, yeah. putting them in a situation where you're basically, you know, we, we know you are not like us, you are forgiven. It's yeah, racist. It's, it, it's, it is. It's, it is. it's uh, something that I've often pointed out is that the, the, the post-colonial radical progressive camp in, in the West, in the United States, uh, is... is imparting its you know kind of white superiority moral superiority western viewpoint uh just from the other edge of it onto yeah. uh, the middle east and infantilizes them and gives them no agency and no uh, moral sure responsibility enough. for for their own uh, course of action um, in, in the cacophony of voices that you're hearing on, on uh, in the public domain this observation is not being made uh, with sufficient force it's not it's not and and, and so let me challenge though um you know, the one kind of intellectual trip up that you could have here if you're if, if 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 and when you find people who are willing to have an honest debate and uh these people that i've talked to are not pro hamas but they're very critical of israel and uh, and they're not excusing Hamas's actions, but uh, they kind of go to where maybe uh, Guterres, the, the UN Secretary General, was saying, you have to look at it in the context, this didn't begin on October 7th, etc. Um, look, they, they point at the Israeli uh, the government, the expansion of settlements. Where does the, you know, how would you respond to those people who bring in the lack of a political horizon for for the Palestinians and those Palestinians who do not support Hamas's actions and who are even anti-Hamas, uh, but those who are uh, fighting for for uh, some are still using the language of a two-state solution. Um, how would you kind of bring that into the equation here? Well, frankly, I was uh, with Netanyahu and he was still uh, in, in government uh, in. 2013, 2014. When, this is when you served on the National Security Council. National, Deputy National Security Advisor. And uh, that's what at uh, the time of the uh, Kerry Initiative. He did not throw it out. It was Abu Mazen who did. At the advice of the late Sai Barakat, who, by, ironically, by the way, died uh, under, you know, uh, well, he was treated uh, in an Israeli hospital. In an Israeli hospital, yeah. Uh, but uh, Saeed Barakat was saying, throw out the negotiations, throw out the Americans. We don't want to talk about security measures. We don't talk, want to talk about recognition, mutual recognition of the two national movements. We can rely on the international community to unite around the, the Palestinian position, and we should join hands with Hamas uh, and, and, uh, and uh, basically uh, challenge the Israeli position. So... Um, if there is no horizon now, it is not because Israel rejected it 10 years ago, it, was, it is because, or nine years ago, it is because the Palestinian uh, decision was that if it's not on our terms, it's not going to happen. 
and uh, and that's that's what brought us to where we are. True, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not happy with the position of uh, Israeli um, maximalists and extremists, uh, but they are not. They they've been uh, a part of power in the last year. They, we had a very divided government. We had the national security advisor sitting with the Palestinians talking about the future, and other ministers in the government who basically would have none of it. Um, but um, uh, this has been the case, let's say, uh, in, in recent years. Uh, but um, going back at 2013, 2014, had Abu Mazen decided to go with this American initiative, we would have been in a very different place now. And in 2013, 2014, 2008 with Olmert, of course, uh, under Not to mention what was Barak, on the uh, table with Olmert, yes. Any uh, clothing so thoughts, Benny, Iran? Well, it's now up to the IDF to basically um, change the equation against Islamist totalitarianism, against this hybrid concept that brings in elements of Islam uh, and, and mixes them into a totalitarian Nazi uh, uh, template. We would actually be doing a service to Islam as a religion by reading it. Of, of this kind of uh, horror. I have a feeling many Muslims uh, would agree with you. Uh, I know certainly the ones that I'm in contact with regularly um, feel feel the same way uh, about uh, Hamas and it's uh, perverting, uh, just as did ISIS, Hamas uh, perverting the uh, uh, the religion of Islam. And, uh, and, and I think what we need to be now is focused on thoughtful and creative solutions uh, to, to deal with this uh, in the long run and not just uh, short-term solutions like we've done for the past uh, 16 years. And that's the challenge we have now. Yes. Uh, we are not the same country that we were on the 6th of October. And, and that's what's different. And that's really what's different here. Okay. Uh, we thank, thank all of uh, the listeners uh, joining us live. We thank all of those who will be joining us uh, and listening afterwards. We thank uh, Ron Lerman for joining us on uh, on this uh, Friday afternoon in Israel on uh, day 28 of uh, the war uh, between Israel and uh, Hamas. Um, we thank you for your insights. Um, if you are not yet following us on our various social media challenges, Juanced on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter, please do so. And uh, make X, sure. it's called X now. I will always call it Twitter, and I don't care. In fact, the website <laughs> is still Twitter. It's true. And you can't uh, do X.com, it doesn't <laughs> exist. And um, if you are not yet following us on whatever podcast platform you uh, like to use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, they got rid of Stitcher. I'm still upset about that. Um, please do uh, subscribe, follow, download this episode and other episodes when it comes out. How many episodes are we at now, Benny? This is 66. 66 episodes um, with uh, all wonderful guests exploring uh, different topics connected to uh, the Jewish world, Israel, the Middle East, uh, in depth with uh, fascinating guests every week. Uh, we wish everyone a peaceful uh, Shabbat, a wonderful weekend, and we hope we can go back to doing episodes not connected to this war uh, very soon. Indeed. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you very much, everybody. And Amisal uh, Chai. I'm Israel Chai. Take care, everyone. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.